Welcome, everyone. Where to start on a subject of sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Gosh. Okay, well, yeah, well, we'll do the rock and roll first. Okay, fair enough. I think where I want to start, though, for, some of you may not even be familiar with Ernest Holmes, who was the founder of the Science of Mind and ultimately Centers for Spiritual Living. But if you've ever taken a class here, you probably are familiar with the Science of Mind textbook. I think almost every class that we offer here um, either quotes from it or uses it as a textbook. You may not know that it actually had two versions of it. One written in 1926 when Ernest Holmes was a fairly young man. And at that time, he really thought what was going on for him was philosophy. And so in the 1926 version of the Science of Mind textbook, he covers everything from soup to nuts with the idea of presenting it as philosophy. So it has sections on psychic phenomenon. It has sections on all kinds of stuff, including sex. Well... 1938 came along, and at that time, it was really organized a bit. It was being presented more as spiritual material, not so much as a philosophy. And so quite a bit of that stuff ended up on the editor's floor. Now, uh, of course, there are some people that probably think it belongs there and should, should lie there forever. But gosh, there are some rich topics in the pieces that were left out. And so over the last, uh, what, four months now, five months now, we've been covering some of the pieces that were left out. And yes, tonight we're actually going to talk about sex. And to get us started to talking about sex and church, I found a joke about sex and church. You knew I would, right? So the women's auxiliary group thought they would break in the new minister right. They asked him to talk about something right on the edge, the spirituality of sex. Well, the new minister thought this was an okay idea, something innovative. He researched the matter, came up with a great talk, and he delivered it to the ladies' luncheon group with great gusto. Problem, though, he felt a little odd telling his wife what he was going to be speaking on. So when she asked him, he said, well, it's uh, uh, sailboats and sailing. I'm talking about sailing. So a week later, the minister's wife bumped into a member of the auxiliary group. Your husband's talk was fabulous. He was so informative and inspirational. I could really tell he put his heart and soul into it. Really, said the minister's wife. Well, I'm mildly surprised. I think he only ever really did it twice. <laughs> And I'm pretty sure he didn't enjoy it. <laughs> so I think that's a good place, actually, to start. Let's start with a reading from this book and what Ernest Holmes actually has to say about the idea of sex. He says, Human love and the affections often go hand in hand with sex desire, even when not recognized as such. An affectionate nature is generally a passionate one. Love is the most wonderful thing in the world and creates the highest form of energy known to humankind. It will be expressed at the level of the passions. But the ideas on sex are likely to become overemphasized. Sex is normal in its proper sphere. If it were not, it would be... It, excuse me. If it were not... It wouldn't exist, for nature does nothing without some good and simple and ample reason. 
So for Ernest Holmes, absolutely, sex is part of life, sex is part of spirituality, and he talks about it, in fact, from that place of the creative urge, that each one of us has those urges to create, even as God creates. And so he uses that, uh, that hermetic axiom, as above, so below, by saying, even as God created in the heavens and, and, and earth, so our own sex drive is part of our creative nature, part of us not only procreating, but the idea of, uh, of creating more love in the world through our interactions as part of our sexuality. But he also goes on to say, um, you know, there can be a little trouble with this when either it's overexpressed or underexpressed. So underexpressed or unexpressed, he says, we either need to express it or rechannel it because the feelings are there, that, that need to create, that, that need to be intimate, that need to move forward in that even physical way. And he says that if we shut that down, if we artificially um, just pretend it doesn't exist or, or, or somehow... Um, bury it into our psyche, that we actually get unhealthy. And he goes on to talk about ways that, well, of course, sex isn't always appropriate. In fact, some of you are thinking, including church, but he goes on to say that, you know, that same level of energy, that same level of creativity needs to be expressed. It can be put into other things. And so he talks about uh, some of the great art projects in the world fueled by that same kind of intensity that probably could have been expressed as the, the sexual nature instead being expressed in other forms of creativity. So to underexpress ourselves in creativity kind of bottles us up, kind of, kind of stifles something in us. Very natural. On the other hand, he says, we can overexpress it. He says that at some point it becomes more about the act itself and less about an expression of creativity. And when that happens, of course, we get in trouble with ourselves, don't we? It's, it becomes more of a, of a physical pleasure thing without any connection to love, without any connection to really expressing fundamental spirituality in the world. And so, so uh, Turnus Holmes, absolutely a part of nature, absolutely a part of our spiritual nature too, and there's that medium ground where we can express ourselves fully, and, and it's a good kind of creation in the world. Now, those of you, I, I got a comment one time, I had just performed my first gay marriage, and, and I got a comment from someone, and I, at first I didn't know how to take it, because it kind of sounded, well, are you ever in the boat when someone says something to you and you're not actually sure whether they're um, kind of slamming you a little bit? <laughs> Maybe I'm just dense, I don't know, probably. But I remember this person said, so what do you think Ernest Holmes would have said about gay marriage. And they said it in that way that made me think, well, I wonder if they're like thinking we shouldn't be doing this or, or if they're saying, you know, go tigers kind of thing, you know, thank heavens we're doing this. Well, I have news for you. Ernest Holmes actually had something to say uh, about, well, not gay marriage, but judge for yourself. Now, keep in mind, this is written in 1926, right? So the word gay, I don't think it had even been invented yet, but listen to this. He says, humans coming from unity are both male and female and have within themselves both attributes of reality. In some, the male predominates. In others, the female we have two distinct types in man and in woman, but they are types of one fundamental principle. 
there is also an intermediate area. That is, one in which the two attributes seem to be almost equally balanced. The greatest men and women of the ages have belonged to this type. For it is a more complete balance between the two. But this is too great a topic to be covered in the course of this lesson. I love that. So it's like, okay, enough said. We're not, we're not going to wade into this too far. But oh my gosh, I think he would have been totally for a gay marriage, right? He, he would have seen that as a, as a good balanced kind of activity to do. Okay, so you might still be thinking, well, why are we talking about the, you know, how really does this have to do with spirituality? And the real reason that I wanted to bring you this section of the book that was edited out is the more fundamental question in nature of desire itself. That part of the book, I'm kind of angry that it got cut out because I think it has to do with something that's important to all of us. We all have desire, and certainly sexual desire is one of them, but don't we all hunger for things beyond what we have now? Isn't that sense of desire in us, whether it's desiring for a new job, whether it's desiring for a new way of being, a new, um, I don't know, a new relationship, um, a new house even. It can be something pretty pedestrian like a new car. Still that desire comes up in us for something that we don't have. And I would like to use a metaphor for a little bit here of, of how this works in our lives. And I will use my dogs at the dog park if you don't mind. <laughs> So our two dogs, still basically puppies, and they're actually just kind of learning how to fetch. And so uh, they haven't quite got it down right. You'll throw the ball, and they'll take out after it, and then they'll get to the ball and go, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that is the, oh, yeah, now they're coming back without the ball. They haven't, they haven't quite got the hang of that yet. And sometimes, because they're puppies, really their, their coordination is a little off, and sometimes I'll throw the ball, and they'll still be looking at me because they didn't notice that the ball actually had been released. And when that happens, it's not a good thing because I'm going, it's over there, it's over there. And they're looking up at me like, you've got a great finger. I love that finger of yours because I'm right, what? I'm, I'm pointing at the ball and they're like, that finger is fabulous. I love your finger. Not quite getting that the finger is actually pointing at something. And that's where I want to start in on this discussion of desire. Because so often, I find myself fixated on the finger and not what it's pointing at. So what is the finger pointing at? Well, the finger itself might be sex, but it's pointing at love. The finger itself may be a cocktail after work, but it's pointing at peace or enjoyment, right? So many of the things that we become fixated on, so many of the things that we really desire to have, especially physical things or physical experiences, so many of them are nothing more than the pointing finger. And when we go for the finger, we're missing on the full play of life, right? The ball's still sitting way over there. That's where our joy would be. That's where our happiness would be. 
And so when I asked you in the meditation earlier to think of something that was desired in your life that came about that was fruitful, that brought you happiness or joy, I bet most people were thinking of maybe a family relationship, maybe some great success or work or something like that. But I would bet you it was the feeling and not the thing so much. It wasn't literally the new car, because what? The new car points at the feeling of freedom, of driving it and having fun and enjoyment, right? The things don't really bring anything in themselves. It's how we feel about it. It's how we use it. It's how we, we capture it. And so desire in its raw form is like one of the sweetest things on the planet, because what? It's pointing us at God, if you think of what we really desire, what the finger in almost every case is pointing to, it's one of those attributes that we say is part of God. It's joy, it's love, it's peace, right? It's, a, it's abundance, it's, a, it, it, it's outrageous funness, I don't know. Think of the wonderful qualities of God, and I would say those are all what the finger is pointing at. Where we get in trouble is, right, where my puppies get in trouble, we see something like sex, for instance. Well, it feels good and no one's hurt, right? Why shouldn't we go for that? It's the finger, though. It's pointing at something that we really want, which is the intimacy and love. And will it bring us there? See, here's the trouble. So often when we go for the object of the desire instead of the desire personified, we come up short. It turns out to be a hollow kind of receipt. It's like the new car doesn't even smell like a new car after about three weeks. Have you noticed that? I am so disappointed. <laughs> it's like it's supposed to smell like a new car forever. It's supposed to give me that feeling of freedom forever. It's supposed to never, ever, ever have a ding in it. <laughs> and as soon as those things begin fading away, Suddenly, that thing I desired, not so much, not bringing me that much pleasure anymore. It's not, not doing what I thought it would do because I have misplaced the true desire of my heart, which in the case of a new car would be that sense of freedom, that sense of, of you know, a beautiful day and the window's down and you're out driving through uh, maybe a road in Forest Park or something, right? Just that sense of unfettered joy of, of driving around. Well, the unfettered joy of life will never get old. The love that can be shared between people will never get old. The, the, the freedom that you might experience in its essence, what the finger is pointing at is there for eternity. Where we get in trouble is wanting to lock down those objects and those people and those relationships as though they too are going to eternally give us what we want. Have you ever noticed that some people want to lock down their lives? They will get to some place, maybe their career is moving along exactly the way they would like it, and then, oh, there's huge resistance at any changes to it, right? No, don't shut down that office, you know? I couldn't possibly move to an office across town because I like what's going on right now, right? 
They look at the kids going off to college, which is a natural and a beautiful thing for one's children to leave the nest and move on. It's like, no, I can't have those changes in my life. Things were going just the way I wanted them. Well, that is when we have started getting our good from the stuff and the things of life. We perceive that my good isn't in heaven. My good isn't that, that sense of freedom. We're seeing that our good is that those two daughters stay at home for all time, <laughs> right? We start seeing our good as, no, it's this job. It's this job working just the way I want it because I've worked out all the kinks of it and nobody ever should shut it down. We begin thinking that the things and stuff of our life somehow have the power to bring us joy or happiness or love or peace or abundance or health or whatever it is. And the truth is, that's all an inside job. And so, in my, my best simple-minded kind of way, I'd like to suggest that we follow the finger. And I still haven't figured out how to do this with my dogs yet. So, so if, if any of you have an idea to make that translation for them, after the service, let me know. But I know that we're a lot smarter than my dogs. And so next time you find yourself desiring something, imagine that that's a finger. And I'd like you to ask yourself, what's it pointing at? That next time that you're thinking, I just really need a new apartment. I hate my old apartment. I really want to express myself in terms of a new apartment. I'd like you to say, well, what does that represent? What is it pointing at? What does it mean to me? Is it freedom? Is it joy? Is it comfort? Is it safety? And the reason I think that this is important is a new apartment may or may not get you where you want to go if you don't know what it is right? You don't want just a new apartment to get out of the old one. If it's safety that it represents, if it's security that it represents, you should know that so that when you're shopping for that apartment, you have a better chance of getting what you want, right? And the same with, uh, the same with some of the other desires we have, whether it's around sex or, or whether it's around uh, loud music, and hopefully we'll get some more of that in a minute. Um, whatever it is, what's it pointing at? Is it the joyousness of existence? Is it, is it pointing at the serenity of being, right? Uh, having been in a 12-step program for any number of years, what I recognized about myself was when I was drinking, what I really wanted, what that alcohol was pointing at was freedom. Now, that's a hell of a way to get freedom, right? But it was numbing me down so that I didn't have to feel some of the pain in my life. And I began equating drinking to actually being free from some of my responsibilities. Do you see how I was in love with the finger and not the freedom that it really pointed at? All kinds of things I think we have turned around in life. All kinds of things, things, we think are our source that are going to bring us pleasure or happiness that are going to bring us peace or joy. And all of those, all of those are an inside job. And as soon as we realize what it is we're really wanting to experience, oh my gosh, it makes the decisions easier. Because then you're aiming 
for the real thing that you want. You know that this is about freedom or you know that this is about love. And then you can ask yourself, well, is that one night stand really apt to bring me love and intimacy? Oh, shoot. (laughs) Probably not so much. Is this new apartment really going to bring me the beauty that I desire or whatever it is? And your answer may be yes and your answer may be no, but oh my gosh, how wonderful it is to have that greater degree of information about what you want and what you're looking for. I'm going to close tonight with a quote from Ernest Holmes that talks about this overall desire of desire this overall topic of desire. He says the solution to the problem of all desire is to transmute destructive tendencies into some form of action that is constructive. And to me that represents following that finger. It's looking beyond the the thing that presents itself into the true desire. He goes on to say love is the givingness of the self to the object of its affection. We should all have something that we love to do, something that will completely express the self, something that will loose the energies of life into action and transmute the power into creative work. We should learn to love beyond all. It is very disastrous to feel that we cannot live unless we possess some individual, something or some experience, body and soul. This is not love. This is not desire. This is merely possession. And so I'm going to close with a tiny bit of homework tonight and a prayer. The homework, I think, is simple but a little devious. The homework is, next time you find yourself desiring something, Ask yourself, is that really what I desire? Or is it that stand-in for something else? Truly, will that thing or that experience bring you happiness? Or do you bring the happiness whether you have that thing or that experience or not? Now, you can answer that either way. It isn't so much how you answer it. Maybe really the new car is the thing, and it will bring you some happiness, maybe not permanent happiness, but happiness. And that's okay, because then you've got more clarity around that. But I bet more often than not, you're going to answer the question a little differently. You're going to answer the question and say, no, what I really want is freedom, or what I really want is love, or what I really want is wholeness. And when you come to that, oh, it's going to change your shopping patterns, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> you're not going to be in a store anymore, for one thing. You're going to be shopping in your own mind, in your own consciousness, trying to tease out that inner joy, that inner peace, that inner love, that inner abundance. Now, it may involve the outer world. Of course it does, right? Even as a part of love is sex, even as a a part of beauty is loud rock and roll. Of course, those are ways that we can express it, but it's not the end product. The end product is still that little red ball that's out in the field that I'm crazily pointing to and my dog hasn't quite got the idea of it yet. So that's your homework. Next time a true desire comes to you, simply evaluate it. 
Is this, which I desire, really the end product here? Or is it a stepping stone to something even more fundamental, even more beautiful, and even more of what will do what I want in the world? And then you can take it from there. You can evaluate how you're going to go about reaching that desire. And I think, I think that will help you. So let us pray. There is one power, one presence, one life, one goodness, and it includes everything, my friends. It includes sex, it includes drugs, it includes rock and roll. The universe doesn't just pick out some things and say God created this, but not that so much. God truly created everything. And that means me. It means the people in this audience tonight. It means everyone on this planet created in that, design, in that divine design of humanity. Each of us, a, a God center, if you will. Each one of us created with that spark of divinity and those desires for bettering ourselves, those desires that can bring us greater happiness, greater love, greater peace, greater wonder, that sweetness of life. And so for this day, and for each day following, I hope and I trust that the folks in this room will think about their desires and recognize that generally what we desire aren't things. <laughs> that generally what we desire are those qualities of God that we hold dear to us. It is love. It is joy. It is friendship. It's harmony. It's peace. It's health. It's abundance. These qualities of God are for each one of us to experience. And as we seek them out, as we understand our own hearts, they can be revealed to us. And so I'm simply grateful to be here tonight, simply grateful to be here among God's beloved. And in gratitude, I let it be. And together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here tonight. So glad you were here tonight.